The reading tonight is taken from the book of Titus, chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and at his appointed season he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, metalkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. This is God's Word. Good evening. My name's Richard, member of staff here. And do keep that page of Titus open. We're going to be looking at that for a few minutes now. We should start by saying, of course, uh, this was the first century. No comment on Crete today. I don't know if you have anyone uh, here from Crete today. I've not been there. I'm sure it's lovely and the people are lovely. And it was a Cretan that said it. It wasn't me. It wasn't Paul. Uh, but shall we pray as we start to look at this? Father, we praise you that you are the God who does not lie. Father, we praise you we have thousands, millions of your words in the Bible and not one of them untrue. No one else we know could say that. We couldn't say that of our own words. But Father, we praise you that you are the God who does not lie. And so every word we've just heard read is true. Father, please, at this evening, would that be true of my words as I speak about this passage? Please, would what I say be true? Please, would our reflections, our responses be true to what you said? Father, please help us as we look at this to be changed by the truth that leads to godliness. Amen. Heaven helps those who help themselves. It's the opening sentence of a book by Samuel Smiles in 1859, 150 years ago, which many would point back to that book 
and say it's, it was the beginning of an industry that's now worth $12 billion a year in America, probably a lot more here as well. Heaven helps those who help themselves. I expect none of us have read the book, but it's quite simply titled Self-Help. Self-Help, 1859. That was the book that started the movement, which I'm sure you don't need me to tell you is now big business. 45,000 titles in print, not to mention conferences, discussion groups, private tutoring. Self-help is big business. You can find books to make you a better person, a better parent, a better worker, a more useful member of society. You can find things to improve your self-control, your integrity, your choice of words, your use of time. And yet for all that and for all of the popularity, there are problems. Yesterday in the New York City Journal, I saw an article that observed the most likely customer for any book on a given topic was someone who'd bought a similar book within the last 18 months. The article comments... That's one thing when you're talking about Civil War books, but doesn't it imply that the first self-help book didn't solve the reader's problem? Seems like a fair comment. For all the promise of the self-help world, the self-help industry, we know that so often it won't deliver. And at the risk of being slightly simplistic, I think you could take all of that back 150 years to the first sentence of the first book, Self-Help. Samuel smiles in 1859 and say... All of the problems, all of the failure to deliver of the self-help industry, they come back to that first sentence. Heaven helps those who help themselves. And I don't know whether he'd ever read the book of Titus, the 2,000-year-old book of Titus, the thousand-word-long book of Titus. But I expect that if he had, certainly if he'd taken the book of Titus to heart, his book and the industry that's been spawned from it would look a lot different and I think would be a lot more effective. You see, Titus, it is a book about how to be a better person, a better parent, a better worker, a better member of society. It it aims to teach us self-control and integrity and choice of words and use of time. In other words, to use the, the language of Titus, Titus is about godliness. Titus is about living more and more like God, godly, in our lives, in our words, and in our thoughts. But the big difference is that Titus doesn't start with a God who helps those who help themselves. Titus starts with a God who is a saviour. Titus starts with a God who is a saviour, which makes all the difference. The God of Titus is a God who saves those who can't do anything to help themselves. And that's why this book has lasted for centuries. That's why for centuries this book has transformed, has helped, has changed millions who've read it and taken it to heart. As Matt said, for the next four weeks we're going to be looking at this book of Titus, a letter from the great missionary Paul to his junior colleague Titus, who's on Crete, uh, on the island of Crete. The situation seems to be Paul's had a missionary journey to Crete, he's preached Jesus, people have become Christians. And now he's left Titus behind. And we can see, if you just look down at verse 5 of what we had read, we see really there the situation for the letter. So verse 5, Paul says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul's been there, people have become Christians, and now Titus is there to organize them into churches, to appoint leaders, to make sure everything's set in place. That's why Paul wrote this letter. 
But it would be a a mistake to start reading at verse 5, because then we'd think that is all the letter is about. Titus is about how you run a church. It's about appointing church leaders so everyone knows their job and knows who they're meant to listen to. Of course, most of us who don't regularly appoint church leaders, we're going to think, well, then why do we need Titus if we start at verse 5? Whereas if we start at verse 1, which is where the apostles started, we realize that Titus really isn't a letter about how a church is ordered. It's a letter about how a church grows in godliness. That's the first thing we'll see, the truth that leads to godliness. Just look down at verse 1. Let me read that again. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The truth that leads to godliness. I'm sure you'll know, when you start reading one of Paul's letters, one of the best things to do to work out what it's all about is to look at the bits that are easy to skip, the beginning and the end, the, the hello and the goodbye, if you like. In our letters, they're not very significant. For Paul, they are. And already here, before he's talking about church leaders, any of that, he's talking about godliness. In verse 1, he's talking about godliness. And then right down at the end, you could just flick across the page, uh, look at page, uh, verse 14 of chapter 3. This is his final thing that's going to be left in Titus' ears. He doesn't say, that guy would make a good elder, or avoid that guy. He says, verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, to good works, to godliness. So right there at the beginning, right there at the end, this is a letter about godliness. And if you sit down in the week, which would be a very useful thing to do, and take five minutes to read through this letter, we're going to be spending a month in it on Sunday evenings. You'll see godliness all over the place, good works all over the place. You could cheat and look at the uh, bookmark that's been produced, uh, take that home with you, have a look at all the places where good works come up. I think there's a couple missing from that bookmark, uh, so you can see what you think. It's a letter all about godliness. Paul's hope for this letter, for our next four weeks looking at this letter, isn't that we'll end up with a well-run church with everyone doing the right job. The hope, the aim for this letter is we'll have a church which is godly. That was his hope for Christchurch Crete, if you like, in the first century. That's his hope for Christchurch Mayfair in the 21st century, that we would learn to be godly. And the way that'll happen, uh, we've already said it, is through truth. See, at the end of verse 1, Paul is an apostle for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The reason Paul's written this letter is because there won't be any genuine deep, lasting godliness in a church that doesn't have a genuine, deep, lasting grasp of God's word. Think of it like this. Imagine uh, you're going treasure hunting and you've got one of those uh, pirate maps, you know, one of these X marks the spots, X marks the spot maps. And so you head out. But you decide for some bizarre reason you're going to leave the map at home and you're just going to start digging holes and see what happens. You're just going to end up with a garden and then a road and then a country full of holes and no treasure. To find treasure without a map clearly is going to be a waste of time. On the other hand, if you keep the map at home and you pin it up on the wall and you study it and you write notes and you bring other people in to see it, but you never leave the house, what's that? The map is for finding treasure. It leads to treasure. Just as the truth leads to godliness. Godliness, trying to find godliness without the truth It's like trying to find treasure without a map. You're just going to end up with a lot of holes. Whereas truth that isn't for the sake of godliness is just like studying a map but then never going where it points. 
It's just a waste of time. The truth leads to godliness. Hugh's already said, midweek groups start up again this week. Most of us, I guess, here would be in a midweek group of some sort, uh, meet together, same group of people each week, look at the Bible. And I find when I ask people, why do you go? I mean, we just do, don't we? You turn up. Uh, but when people think about it, why do you go along? I normally get one of two kind of answers, ballpark answers, either truth or godliness. So you get to slightly caricature, you get truth groups. So all evening, those are in the Bible, there's lots of questions about the structure of the passage, how does verse 7 relate to verse 6, how does it all relate to what we've read before? A a little argument breaks out over the meaning of a quotation from Isaiah, and it just means you run out of time to pray for each other at the end again. And you walk away, I don't know if a giggle means people recognize this character or not, I'm not going to ask. And we walk away, you're either satisfied because you think, I've got that passage, or you're just frustrated because you think, I still don't get verse 8 and what it's all about. You say to groups like that, we want to know the, tr- excuse me, the truth of God's word, which of course is a good thing. But to say that we care about truth, but we just can't be bothered with godliness, well, it means we don't understand truth. We don't really care for it at all if it's not for godliness. Then the other caricature would be, you get godliness groups. There's a long conversation over dinner about uh, Sally's struggle to speak about Jesus at the office. Everyone knows that the reason Justin isn't there is because his brother's ill. By the time you get to the Bible study, the conversation's a lot quieter. Until, of course, everyone's favourite question, what difference will this make for us tomorrow morning? At which point it all picks up again. And you go home either satisfied because there was some advice on how to relate to a difficult colleague, or frustrated because it just didn't seem that helpful. So again, that group wants to be godly, which is a good thing. But in the end, if you say we care about godliness, we're just not bothered with the truth. And we've misunderstood what godliness is. Truth leads to godliness. And so we want our groups to be, and you can say the same thing for listening to sermons, reading the Bible by ourselves, we want to be truth leads to godliness kind of groups, kind of people, kind of listeners and readers. Groups who are convinced with Paul the truth of the Bible is like a treasure map, it leads to godliness, just as surely as X marks the spot. And without it, we won't get godliness. It's the first thing we see from uh, the introduction to this letter of Titus. The truth leads to godliness. And the second thing is going to be, well then, what is that truth? What is the truth that leads to godliness? Now the answer of Titus is this, that God is a saviour. The truth that will lead to godliness is the truth that God is a saviour. Let me read again just from verse 2. Paul talks about a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and at his appointed season brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Saviour. The same name is there in verse 4. To Titus, my true son and our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Saviour. In Titus, Saviour is Paul's favourite name for God. We get it six times that God is a Saviour, that Jesus is a Saviour. Three times that he promises eternal life. God is a Saviour. Which, of course, is the distinctive claim of the Christian faith. This week, I uh, had to have some travel injections going away uh, to Madagascar soon. And it was with the nurse, and having these injections, she's making some small talk, because she hadn't got things quite as ready as she had hoped to by the time I was there. She's making small talk. 
and asked me what I did for a job. I worked for a church. Oh, great. A uh, Christian church? Yeah, Christian church. Oh, great, she says. Oh, I discovered Buddhism a few years ago. It seems to me all religions are basically the same. They're just about improving yourself. Honestly, I wish at that moment I'd thought of Titus. <laughs> I wish I'd thought of Titus to be able to say, I don't know about all religions. I, I don't know very much about Buddhism, but you can't say that about Christianity, that it's just improving yourself. As far as I can see, only Christianity offers a saviour instead of self-help, offers a saviour. It's, it's not Easter Sunday tonight, but it was just a week ago. A saviour who can beat death. A saviour who can walk out of his own tomb and say, my people will come with me. Those who trust me, I'll bring with me, I'll save from death. It is the distinctive claim of Christianity. I was thinking about a saviour again this week. Uh, I don't know if you saw the pictures in Argentina of the flooding. I always find the most haunting images, the ones that stick with me, are uh, families huddled on the roof of a house. It's obviously no warning. They're just escaping the only way they can, up, upstairs, upstairs, and onto the roof. There's nowhere else to go. And now here's a family with everything lost in a flood downstairs, with nowhere to go, nothing to do. No way of stopping the water coming up, just another few feet and taking even the roof from them. Huddled round a radio, desperate for some news, good news. And of course, what the residents in Argentina at the moment don't want, they don't want self-help. They don't want over the radio some sort of swimming instructions. Here's how you learn to swim in three easy steps so they can rescue themselves and go off to safety. They don't want that. They need a saviour. They need over the radio an announcement, the boat is coming, there's room for everyone. They need a saviour. It's funny, I find the two most common objections I hear to Christianity being good for society, the claim that Christianity will lead to, to godliness, to people behaving well, benefiting society, the two most common objections, if people can be forgiven, they'll just act however they want. In other words, if God's a saviour, People just act however they want because it will be forgiven at the end. Or the second will be, if people are just concerned with heaven, well, they'll do nothing here and now. They'll do nothing to help people here and now. Too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. And Paul takes both of those objections head on. He says, no, do you know what the truth is that will lead to godliness? The truth is that God is a saviour who forgives all sins, who can beat death, who promises eternal life to his people. That is the truth that will lead to godliness. Not to complacency, not to laziness, but to godliness. And I think that is exactly what would happen on the roof in Argentina. The news comes over the radio, the boat is coming. Well, until then, of course, it's very hard to be simply generous, to share. Food is precious. Who knows how long we're going to be here? One family is not going to share with another. But suddenly the news comes, we're on our way to safety. The boat's a few hours away. We're on our way to safety, to food, to warmth. The way people relate changes. There's, there's godliness, there's generosity because there's a saviour. Truth leads to godliness. And particularly the truth that God is a saviour. That is a truth that will transform Christians, that will transform a church. I mean that we're godly. 
Okay, that's about half our time. We're only in verse 4. We're going to speed up working through the text from now on. The big picture of Titus, though, it's all there really in those first few verses. God is a saviour, and that truth will change us, will lead to godliness. But it's not quite as simple as saying those are steps one and two. Step one, truth. Step two, godliness. Really, I think in, in Titus, those are steps three and four. And so you've got a couple before them, and that's what the rest of chapter one is all about. So the whole picture is, step one is you appoint blameless elders. Step two, who can silence lying teachers. And then you get step three, truth, that leads to godliness. You appoint blameless elders who can silence lying teachers so that you have truth that leads to godliness. So verse five, appointing elders, he's not moving on to a new topic. I'm I'm done with godliness now, let's talk about how you arrange the church. He's talking about how do you get truth and godliness into a church? You appoint blameless elders who can silence lying teachers. Look at those two in turn first. Appoint blameless elders. If a church is going to grow in truth and godliness, it must have leaders who are blameless in family life, in character, and in teaching. We'll look at those three in turn in a minute, but just before we do, it's worth asking, why do we need to hear this paragraph? I take it there's a few in the room, just a handful, who are appointed elders of this church or another church visiting. But most of us aren't. And so why do we need to listen to this? Well, a couple of reasons at least. This, this does tell us who to copy. As Christians, one of the reasons we have uh, elders is that we learn from them godliness. We copy habits. Actually, everything in this list is something all Christians are called to. So this will tell us what to copy. It will also tell us who to choose. We're not involved in appointing elders, but most of us at some point will leave London and join a new church. What we look for in leaders in a new church if we go. So who to copy, who to choose. Uh, let's have a look down. First of all, if the reason I left you on Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And here are the directions. First, an elder must be blameless in home life. Verse 6, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. I hope it's obvious, this isn't saying that an elder must be married and have children. Then Jesus couldn't be an elder. Paul, who wrote this letter, couldn't be an elder. It's obviously not saying that. But for those who are married, this is a useful test. For those who aren't, you could look at other close relationships to see how do they relate to people around them. But for those who are married, the way an, an elder treats his family is the way he'll treat the church. So there's two questions. Firstly, is he committed to his wife? Is he faithfully serving her, loving her, seeking her growth in godliness? If not, don't expect he'll be any different with the church, which is God's bride, God's wife. The second question, are his children faithful? You see, uh, the phrase there, a man whose children believe could equally be translated whose children are faithful. I, th- I think most likely it's asking, has, have his children come under the grip of the false teachers? We'll see later in the chapter. The false teachers, they've infiltrated the households. Their whole households have been given over to false teaching. And the false teachers are, just like the elders' children are told not to be, they're wild and disobedient. So I think the question is, has this false teaching made inroads into the elders' house? Is his family well taught? Are they able to spot false teaching and avoid it? If not, then don't think he'll do those things for the church if he can't do them for his own family. An elder must be blameless in home life. Second, an elder must be blameless in character. 
Look down again, verse 7. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. With blameless, it comes up a couple of times. It doesn't mean he's going to be sinlessly, perfectly sinless in these characteristics. Of, Of course not. Then Jesus would be the only elder. There's only one of him. You can't have a group. It doesn't mean perfect. But an elder must have a good reputation. He must be blameless in that sense that you can say these things, they are generally true of him. They're a good description of him. I wonder if a useful test is this. If, if you told a brother or a business partner or you know, someone who knows them closely, a flatmate, I'm an elder, would they be shocked? <laughs> would they say, oh, well, don't tell them how much you drink with the clients or because you better keep that tongue of yours under control. If someone who knows them closely is shocked that they're leading a church, then I think they can't lead a church. I suppose it's obvious why this matters. Our culture is very good at sniffing out hypocrisy in leaders. So leaders don't just give truth, and it doesn't matter who they are. Leaders give truth that leads to godliness. And so if there isn't godliness, then no one's going to take the church or the leaders seriously. The third thing, blameless in teaching. We're down in verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. See, Paul doesn't say an elder must be a gifted communicator, brilliantly able to hold a crowd like the best stand-up comic, able to ask the perfectly precise questions in a Bible study. Of course, those who teach are going to want to work on those things to be as effective as possible. But see, verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught. That's the requirement for an elder's teaching to be blameless. Will he hold to the Bible? Will he keep teaching what the Bible says when it's unpopular, when it's hard, when it costs? Will he refuse to be swayed from declaring what the Bible says? And if he does, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught so that he can encourage. Then he'll have all that he needs to encourage and to refute. If a church will be godly, it has to know truth, and that means it needs elders, leaders, who are blameless in family life, in character, in teaching. And it means, in verses 10 to 16, that they'll silence lying teachers. You see, verse 9, they don't just encourage, they also refute. And Paul's going to expand on that in the next few verses. We need leaders who will silence lying teachers. Not just always make us feel good, cozy, comfortable, but we'll say, that's wrong. And that needs to be silenced. Just look at verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they'll be sound in the faith. It's strong language, isn't it? Silence, rebuke, ruining. I suppose most of us are like me. It would be a lot easier if it was just step one to step four. You can miss the stuff in the middle. Have godly leaders, and then you'll be godly. That's nice. 
I can enjoy that. But Paul says godliness comes from truth. That means that lies need to be silenced. Or in the, verse of, in the words of verse 11, the lies will ruin whole households. That's worth saying, even if you took these verses out of the New Testament, you still wouldn't be able to escape the fact that all over the place, the warnings about false teaching and the danger that it causes are in the strongest possible language. So 2 Timothy, false teaching is compared to gangrene. Uh, I'm no doctor, I don't really know uh, much about it, but if I went to the doctor and was told, I have, I have gangrene, but let's just leave it a month, come back if it gets worse, let's see what happens. I think I'd want a second opinion. I want something done before I lose a leg. False teaching is like gangrene. It spreads and it destroys. Or in Acts 20, false teachers are compared to wolves in a flock of sheep. Again, I'm no farmer, but I can't ever imagine a situation where I'd say, I'll just let the wolves play with the lambs for a little bit. I'll just keep an eye and see what happens, just to make sure nothing gets out of hand. Wolves get chased away. They get shot because they kill. And so lying teachers must be rebuked because... Christians and households and churches are in danger and will die. What's most struck me, I think, as I've looked at these verses this, uh, these last few weeks, is what these lying teachers are saying. What is their lie? And essentially, as far as I can see, it is that God isn't a saviour. They're denying that God is a saviour and they're doing it by adding commands to the Bible. Now, we don't have all the details here. Paul and Titus, they knew what they were talking about, so we didn't need to spell it all out. Which does mean we can apply it to a whole bunch of situations that we wouldn't, that aren't exactly what's going on here. But we do know a bit of what's going on. We already know from verse 10 that it's, uh, those are the circumcision groups. This is led by uh, Jewish Christians. But look down, uh, let me just read from verse 13 again. Rebuke them sharply, they'll be sound in the faith, and will pay no attention to Jewish myths, or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. So I said, we don't know what these Jewish myths are, exactly what commands were being pushed on the Christians in Crete. But it's clear that basically what's going on here is people are adding commands, they're adding rules, they're adding rituals to the Bible. So you can imagine it goes something like this. Well, you're trusting, you're following Jesus, that's great. But you do know that's not enough to make you a, a real Christian. And then they come along, verse 15, it seems their uh, priority particularly is this ritual purity. This language about pure and defiled. You eat this and don't eat this. You have to have this ritual, this ceremony. Don't go there, don't touch that. As long as you do the right things on the outside, as long as you behave like us. As long as you just follow our rules. Of course, follow Jesus, but follow our rules as well. Then you'll be fine. And so they deny that Jesus is a saviour. Jesus is no longer a saviour who offers himself to any sinner. We're saved by what we do, how we perform, whether we measure up, whether we can behave well enough. As I was reading this, the first thing I did was thought about all the churches out there that need to hear this. Churches that uh, would teach this maybe, more, maybe explicitly. You must behave like us to be a real Christian. I, whether that's uh, religiously, you must keep our rituals. Politically, you must embrace our causes. 
Morally, you must live up to our beyond the Bible standards. But actually, it struck me, Titus has plenty to say to this church right here and, and to me, that right here as well. Actually, for me, the thing that helped me see that was uh, realizing how I treat children on Sunday morning in Sunday school. It's one of the privileges of my week. I get to spend time with uh, kids on a Sunday morning. And Sunday lunch comes around. Someone inevitably asks me, how did it go? And very rarely is my answer based on how well was Jesus proclaimed as Savior and how much did the children love him. Very often my answer is based on how well did they behave? Did they join in with all the things that I wanted them to do? By the end of the session, could they answer the questions about the story? How well did they behave? And of course, it's obvious to me why I I care about that, why that's what I answer. It's because I can measure external behavior. I can see quite easily, is it better, is it worse? To some extent, I can create it. There's all sorts of tricks you can use to get children to behave the way you want them to. And so it's manageable, it's measurable. And then it's quite a short step to see that I do just the same with adults and with myself. I want outward behavior. I want something I can measure. I want progress so that I can see godliness and see if it's there or not. That's why I ask other people. I ask myself, how many times a week do you read the Bible? It doesn't mean that I care if our hearts are delighting that we hear God speak. I just want to know how many times. Or I tell people, it's good to join a rotor at church. It's good to serve. It doesn't mean that I care if our hearts are thrilled to serve the God who served us. I wince when Christians use Jesus as a swear word on the outside. That doesn't mean that I care if our hearts love his name. Here it is sweet. So in truth, I think the spirit of these lying Cretan teachers isn't far from my heart. Every time I care about what someone looks like on the outside, how we behave. Do they live up to my imagined standards? I wonder if the same would be true of your heart as well. I'll say with my words, Jesus is a saviour who offers himself to any sinner in practice. In practice, I live as they were saved by how we perform. Of course, the ultimate irony of that is, verse 16, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. They claim to know God, verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. See how these teachers are described in the rest of the paragraph? It's obvious that they're unfit for doing anything good. They're rebellious. They're greedy. On the surface, they're fine religious people. Underneath, they're driven by power and money. They're no different than anyone else when you scratch under the surface. They look fine on the outside. But they're unfit for doing any genuine good. These rules that they've added, they're meant to create godliness. They're meant to show godliness. But they kill it. They kill it. We'll have more to say, more to see in the coming weeks, how the truth that God is a saviour leads us to godliness. It'll come up again and again in the letter. But to start with, Paul wants us to know how we guard that truth that leads to godliness. We appoint blameless elders who can silence lying teachers so that we can hold on to the truth. The truth that God is a saviour. And that truth will transform us to be godly as individuals, as a church. That's the truth that will change us.
Should we pray? Father, as Paul urges Timothy, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Please would you teach us that as we spend time in the book of Titus. Please would you teach us godliness, to love Jesus, to follow him. But Father, please protect us from a false godliness, a surface level godliness. A, let's impose the rules that can make people godly. Godliness. Father, please, with the truth that Jesus is a saviour, live deep in our hearts. Please, would that be the truth that we celebrate, that we sing of, that we declare to one another. And please, with that truth, do its work of changing us, of continuing to change us, that we would live for him. Amen.